Welcome to the most interesting people in higher education. I'm Lee Bradshaw, and this is a Noodle production. I've spent my entire career collaborating with some of the most influential campus leaders. Together, we've transformed higher ed. In this series, I'll take you on never heard before journeys from the narrative arcs of the people evolving some of the most respected institutions in the world. You'll get an insider perspective from the mission-driven administrators, influential professors, devoted researchers, and others that are part of the highly interesting cadre of people transforming higher ed. Welcome to the show. Welcome back to another episode of The Most Interesting People in Higher Education. This episode, we are truly honored to have the magnificent Dr. Rosalind Artis join us. Dr. Artis is the president of the HBCU Benedict College in South Carolina and is one of the most impressive people you'll listen to. We talk a lot about a whole host of topics, but we begin with hearing about Dr. Artis's own experience attending an HBCU. Many people often say that an HBCU is a place where you can be yourself. For me, an HBCU was the place I learned who myself was. I had no idea. Dr. Artis and I also discussed how she got into higher education, how she ended up at Benedict, and what her goals are while she is there. She has a pretty wonderful way of thinking about the goals she has for her university too. And so my sort of answer to the vision question always was to make this an institution my own children would attend without question. It was eye-opening to hear the different challenges and goals that HBCUs have compared to traditional colleges. A majority of her students come from low-income backgrounds and are the first in their family to attend college, which naturally means Benedict needs to serve a slightly different function for those students. Education is not just an interesting experience. Right. It is designed to get a job to help move their communities and families out of poverty. Thank you so much to Dr. Artis for taking the time to talk with us and give us an inside perspective on the specific challenges facing HBCUs. I hope you really enjoy this episode. Welcome to the most recent episode of The Most Interesting People in Higher Ed. I am joined by Dr. Rosalind Artis who is the president of Benedict College. Dr. Artis, welcome. Thank you, pleasure to be here. In the theme of every episode, I'd love to start from the beginning and then we'll, I'm sure we'll find our way towards today and the madness that was the last year and, and everything that Benedict, Benedict's up to. Take us back to the early years. What, uh, when you weren't aspiring to be a lawyer or president of a university, what were you aspiring for? Oh my goodness, survival. I grew up in Southern West Virginia, which is a 3% minority state. You may be aware of that. And so uh, I was a minority in a very significant way. Grew up there. My father was a coal miner, Loretta and Lynn, and I have something in common. And quite frankly, wanted an opportunity to go to college. Really believe uh, my teachers believed deeply in me and kept encouraging me. And I wanted to go to college. And quite frankly, there was no college fund waiting for me. And neither of my parents had attended college. And so it didn't look likely. Uh, I signed on for the United States Air Force because I'd heard they had tuition assistance. And I thought that might be a great opportunity for me. And as luck would have it, or as God would have it, I received a scholarship offer from West Virginia State, then college, now university, sealing my fate and sending me to my HBCU to pursue a four-year degree. So you started at an HBCU and then did. you, did you go to HBCUs all the way through to get your, your EDD? I did not. 
I've had actually a diversity of higher education experiences. I attended West Virginia State, again, a four-year HBCU located in West Virginia. I earned my bachelor's in political science, bachelor, bachelor of arts in political science, and then on to West Virginia University College of Law, course WVU, West Virginia University Mountaineers, flagship comprehensive institution in the state of West Virginia. So from a small HBCU to the large comprehensive predominantly white institution in our state, and ultimately pursued my doctoral work at Vanderbilt University in Nashville. So an elite private, a comprehensive public, and an HBCU, great diversity of degrees. And you've seen the, you've seen all the differences then. So how do you, I mean, what, so what is, I, yeah, I, incredibly different experiences. Um, and I often say, and I'm very clear about it, my HBCU really made me, uh, helped me to evolve as a scholar and a leader and a learner and prepared me very well to matriculate into the College of Law and then ultimately into Vanderbilt. So great foundational, great foundational education there. Obviously, law schools are not everywhere attached to every institution. Two of our historically Black colleges, three of our historically Black colleges have law schools associated with them. Uh, that was not my particular pathway, simply because I wanted to stay in the state of West Virginia, and there is no HBCU law school in the state of West Virginia. And so WVU was it for me. And then when I began to think about pursuing my doctoral work, I remembered my HBCU experience. My president, West Virginia State College, Hazel Carter, had been a graduate of Vanderbilt's Peabody School. And so he was the president I most knew and admired. And so I wanted to go where he went and chose to apply to Vanderbilt. I didn't know you grew up in West Virginia. I actually grew up in Virginia. Not too far yeah. away. So I was I was down in Roanoke. Which which town in West Beckley. Virginia were you? Beckley, West Virginia, in the oh. very heart. Yes. All the major yes. arteries, 81, 77, 64, run. Oh yeah. West. So you haven't been to it, you've been through it. Growing up, my mom, we were a, a middle class or middle class family as well. And she sold makeup for Revlon. Oh, wow. And one of her one of her, I think it was a Walmart or something. It was it was actually in Beckley. So we uh-huh. I know the area. Oh, that's fine. I used to go with her when I was off out of school and we'd drive over there. I love that. And so what put you back or what brought you back to an HBCU, right? Like, and what, what was that like departing from HBCU culture and, and coming back in and what did, what did that look and feel like? So if I could go back just a tad, it's yeah. sort of an interesting transition for me because I attended an HBCU by accident. Um, and, and people always assume that I chose an HBCU as a young person of color. The truth is, I didn't know what the acronym HBCU stood for. I grew up in a predominantly white community. And so that was not a thing, if you will. And so the scholarship is mm. what attracted me to my HBCU. And quite frankly, I was shocked when I arrived on the campus and the president was a person of color and the first lady and the teachers and the administrators and my roommates and friends. And so it took me a while to really get acclimated. Many people often say that an HBCU is a place where you can be yourself. For me, an HBCU was the place I learned who myself was. I had no idea. I listened to, you know, Van Halen. I mean, I grew up in an all-white environment. Yeah, yeah. You know, Bon Jovi, There's No Easy Way Out was my theme song, right? And so it took me some some adjustment to figure yeah. out who I was as a person of color. And so my HBCU didn't allow me to be me it taught me who me was. And so when I 
kind of matriculated through, went to law school and practiced, and then ultimately chose a career in higher, shifted to a new career in higher education. As I started looking around at where I would most like to lead and the kind of institution I wanted to serve in, I remembered very much the experience at my HBCU, the confidence it had given me, the growth that I'd experienced there, and decided that's where I most wanted to serve, to be that for other young people. I love that. I, I, I didn't know that. You can take that experience and map it directly to, to what you want the experience to be for your students. Absolutely. Then. Absolutely. I, I think we approach our college experience bringing with us all of our lived experiences and the backdrop, our lens, if you will. And so I think that an HBCU is a wonderful place to fully explore um, individual characteristics, traits, ideas, um, and, and really fully develop into the person that you want to be as a person of color in this country. And, and I'm, you kind of can't speak about a lot of HBCUs without speaking about faith uh, right. and, that, and that intersection. And is that, that's live and well at Benedict. It was live and well in West Virginia. Like, is that, is that, that is still, still directionally in the same place? That is correct. The vast majority of historically black colleges were founded as normal schools, providing opportunities for teacher training programs. And the vast majority were also founded either by missionaries or by people of color who had tremendous faith. And the idea that providing a way, making a way out of no way um, was, is, and always will be a central feature of the HBCU experience. And so many of our private HBCUs are more tightly affiliated with the church. Benedict is a Baptist affiliated institution. Large and Memorial, the institution I led previously was also a Baptist affiliated institution. We were founded by Bathsheba Bendick, a Baptist missionary, a Baptist home mission society. And so those roots, that history is still very much a part of our DNA. Great. I love that. And you're, and then just to add to that, you're, I saw where you said, I'm going to, I'm not going to get the quote right. So I'll paraphrase, but students of color or um, any student going to HBCUs are, they're not necessarily going there just to, just to get it, to get a degree, right? They're there to pursue something or they're after something more or to, to, to change their life in some way. Can you, like, where do you see that most, uh, most palpable? So, Right here on the campus of Benedict College, our students are overwhelmingly low wealth first generation kids of color. And so for these students to graduate, to earn a college degree and embark on either a profession of their choice or to go on to graduate school really breaks a trend, a cycle, a history in their families. They may be the first in their families. Mm. 71% of Benedict College students are still the first in their family to go to college. I knew what that felt like. My mother went to college after I did. So I was the first in my family to go to college. And my mother at 56 years old went back and earned her BSN. So we broke that trend in our family. My brother's college educated. My oldest is college educated. Lord willing, and the crick don't rise. The two behind him will be as well. So I think we uplift communities, entire families, and really change uh, generational cycles by educating this unique and special population of students. You're just a you are the function of the community, right? You're, you're, we're you're a cornerstone. We're yeah. a cornerstone of the community. We are not, I always say, we are not in the community. We are of the community. We are born of the communities in which, in, within which we live, work, and play. So that must mean, and this is potentially a loaded question, but that must mean alumni engagement looks different. Um, <laughs> you bet. <laughs> and so, like, now we're, now we just jumped right into, Let's chat deeply about higher ed, but I think we all know the stigma behind any sort of ivory tower alumni situation. So we'll put that aside. Mm-hmm. But what is that if you juxtapose that with Benedict or with any HBCU? I mean, you're, I'm, I would imagine you know themes of most. Um, sure. What does that look like for alumni? 
So I think historically Black colleges function very much as families and communities. And that is both good and bad, to be quite frank. Our alumni have a high degree of ownership over the institutions. They have gained something very, very valuable. Again, they have broken generational curses. They have transformed their lives and the lives of their families and communities. And as a result of that, they are stakeholders, if you will, in the institution. And so when we look at predominantly white institutions, it tends to be individuals who have made significant financial investments tend to mm. drive the institutions yep. in a very real way, whether it's admissions or governance, they do tend to have big voices. At HBCUs, every family member gets a vote, right? From the biggest donors to those who maybe have not been able to invest financially in the institution, but who have talked us up in their church or their community and therefore drip you know, tried to drive enrollment in some way, sent their own children here and, and therefore double down on their ownership of the institution. So I think it is, it strengthens the fiber of the institution, but it also is a unique and special kind of balance relationship that I think administrators, faculty, staff have with their alumni. You are shareholders, but you're not controlling shareholders in many instances. And so that's a delicate dance that we often have to do. So if I... I had uh, Dr. Michael Sorrell on the show and he, on his shirt, he had we over me and that stuck with me. Right? Mm-hmm. That's like a very succinct way of thinking about it. And you're saying kind of a similar thing, which is like, it's, it's, it's in all of us. It's the family uh, right. approach. But when I think of my family and I love them, I think that's, there's a lot of dynamics there. Like <laughs> you have right. all sorts of feelings and different stuff that happens. And so like, yeah, talk I mean- to us a little bit about the difference in being a president of a family than of just a, your um, it's just harder to fire people it's just a lot harder to oh, fire interesting. people right interesting. you can't fire your aunt it's just not done <laughs> in a family and still get to go to the picnic right and i think there you know we all have the aunt we go to for advice right that is the 30 yeah. year faculty member administrator who knows the history of this institution as clearly as she knows her own reflection in the mirror there's a crazy uncle right? That you might not always want to trot out. And yet, you know, he is a part of the family too. He's a staple. So I think, yeah. Yeah. I, I think that, you know, I, I say it somewhat tongue in cheek, but it's very real. When you, when the organizational structure functions like the nucleus of a family and all of that extended family and all of the, the desire to take care of one another, the desire to help and support one another and to lovingly correct one another. And that's a privilege that I have, quite frankly, here at Benedict College and certainly enjoyed it at my prior institution as well. I am known for it around the campus. My students know that I will lovingly correct them. And I think the loving part has to be really clear. When I say to you, you know, stand up straight or I correct your grammar, it is because I love you and I need for you to be the very best version of yourself. It is not to embarrass or harm you. It is so that you can be better, so that you leave Benedict College better than you found it, than you arrived here. And so in a family, we do that. You would correct your own children if they were out of line in some way, whether that was behaviorally or academically or otherwise. We do that on these campuses. And I think I dare say that is both a blessing and an obligation that my peer presidents at predominantly white institutions don't necessarily have to um, carry. It's a responsibility they don't necessarily have to carry. Not as much as riding on every individual student as is the case here. Where'd you learn it? I mean, I know you're a mother of three. Is that is that what taught you how to lead a university like that? So I don't know that it was taught as much as 
sort of a, an intentional decision. So when people ask you, and they always ask you this when you start mm. as a president, what is your vision? And I always find that to be such an odd question. The reality is when you arrive on a college campus, you don't know where the bathroom is. You don't have a yep. vision, right? Yep. Um, and one of my peer, one of my mentors always says, a vision without a plan and money is an illusion. Right. And so my sort of answer to the vision question always was to make this an institution my own children would attend without question. Right. That there would oh, be no. Oh. Of course, my kids are coming. Benedict. And so if we are doing our jobs, there should be no question that this is an institution your own children would select as a first choice option. And so that is what we drive toward. That's what we work toward. And so if it's good enough for my children, by extension, it is good enough for other children. And so I think if we keep that as our barometer, our polar star, our metric, then I think we're all better off. So I always say I'm the mother of 2,103. 2,100 students I've been entrusted with by virtue of being the president, and three that God gave me the old-fashioned way. Um, and I owe them all the same thing, an excellent, an excellent opportunity to secure an education. Create an institution that your children would go to. I mean, like the, the simplicity and yet complexity of that yeah. is kind of beautiful, right? Like, and so like, how do you, how do you remind yourself of that every day? Or do you do that? Is that like something you have so in front of you? Every day. It, it, it absolutely pervades every single decision if that is the polar star. So if I go to the cafeteria, is this what I want my children eating, right? Are there fresh fruits and vegetables? Are there, you know, overly processed foods? Are there good options for my children? If you think of it in the way you would think about your own children, you know, is, are the bathrooms clean, right? Are the dormitories places I would want my daughter laying her head? And so when that is your benchmark, is this a teacher I would want my student, my young my child to study under? Is this the quality of education I would want for my own children? And so as long as we're looking through that lens at every single issue, problem, concern, you know, is the counseling center appropriately receptive? to a student's needs? Are we being intentionally empathetic? Are we listening more than we're talking? Are we serving more than we're delivering? I think makes a big difference on a college campus. And it's what makes a small college experience like a Benedict College experience so unique and so special. I've heard I've heard it from a few friends that are, that are presidents that are also women who are also the first woman president on their, on their unique campuses. And you're, you're the 157 years and then Dr. Took August came along, came along. Yeah. It just, and Benedict was founded by, by female leadership, right? Like that's yes. what I read. Yes. Benedict was founded in 1870 uh, by Bathsheba Benedict, who interestingly, her husband died prematurely, leaving her a small inheritance. And she actually had money of her own, which she put together with his money and for a whopping $13,000 investment purchased an 80 acre plantation on which Benedict College now stands. And it took 137 years before they would, or 147 years before they would trust a woman to run. Bathsheba's vision. I'm not sure how you account for that, but I'm honored to be at the seat just the same. I think I mean, stepping on a little bit here on this one, but I think we all know a little bit how that uh, never happened, uh, but we're learning these things now that we look back at history. So first female president to come in, I don't know, something something I've heard, and again, I, I'm not speaking from a place of experience, more of curiosity, is that the label is, of first female president isn't what somebody wants forever. It's It might be a, a moment in time, but then the, you know, the, the labels of success, the merits, the everything that you're as you said, your polar star you achieve. And so I'm envisioning this kind of, it kind of being like a, a tethered support. And then it kind of, you cut that and you move away and you're, 
gliding on your own? Like what, that, that might be trite. Like, no. what, tell me what that's like. You know, I, I think it's slightly different than that. So hmm. I tired of it quickly. So this is my second time as the first time. So I was first at Florida Memorial and oh. I've been at college. So I get to be a two-time, one-time, first-timer, which is sort of interesting. And the, the introduction, do you get tired of people always introducing you as the 13th and first female or the 14th and first female? Why do we have to tack that on at the end? I've grown accustomed to it because it matters. It matters to my daughter. It matters to the women on the campus. It matters to the vice presidents and directors and faculty that I meet yeah. all over the country. It means something to them. It, it may be it may be offensive to them. It may be doggone it. We need to move on past the first, and there needs to be a second and a third and a fourth, and that's okay too. It just sort of reminds people that it only took us 150 years. And that means we have a little more work to do. So I've gotten over being irritated by the redundancy of the reference. The second thing that I think it means is that it carries a tremendous responsibility. The reality is if you are the first and you have a desire that you not be the last, don't blow it. The bar is pretty high for us. And so if I don't do this well, it may be another 147 years before another woman gets a shot at it because we're prone to generalize. Well, the last woman blew it. Therefore, we need to go a different direction. And so I have a tremendous amount of pressure to get this right, to ensure that other women have the same opportunity and that, the again, the title sort of drops away. And I think third, which is related to the second, and that is the high bar piece of it. People say glass shatter, you know, sort of Hillary made that popular and mm -hmm. we all sort of talked about that. And so, and I've had people very graciously say, wow, you know, introduce me as a glass shatterer. Um, that's really awesome. Except that where do you suppose the glass goes when you break the ceiling? Mm. Falls down on you, on the, right? If you're standing under it, when it gets broken, you get to be in the Take shower the of shards. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, and those shards are sharp and they're real and they're painful. And I don't think we spend enough time talking about what that means, whether those shards come from other women who have not fully adapted to and appreciated the idea that they now work for a woman, whether they come from men who will never get used to working for or alongside a woman in many instances, whether they come from a young person, a student who affords you just a little less respect than they would the male who came before, whether it's your colleague presidents who look at you and size you up pretty quickly and decide that you're not to be taken seriously. So shards come in different shapes and sizes and forms. And I think people underestimate just how painful those things can be over time. So, and first of all, thank you for sharing all that. And I, I, I appreciate the adjustment to the way, to the approach of the way I was saying it as a learner, that's helpful. When you think about the shards, uh, as, as you mentioned, and like, I would just characterize those folks as less than agile or flexible or mobile. How do you not focus on changing them? How do you focus on where you're going to your polar star rather than say, I really didn't like how that guy addressed me or like, I can tell she doesn't want to uh, work for a woman. Like, yeah. how do you focus on progress and not on what um, like, so I, I hear? I think as a rule, glass does not bend, it breaks. Right? It's, it's not flexible, it's not malleable, it's, it's very difficult to negotiate, it splinters, right? it shatters. And so you have to qualify the extent to which you can actually change people's perspective. Mm. But to the extent that you can, I find a couple of things. Number one, data is your friend. 
be clear about the outcomes, as young people now say, keep your receipts so that the work that you do and how you quantify that work and how you document that work is really, really clear. I would also say grace is always the order of the day. Certainly always show kindness. Sometimes it's ignorance, not mean-spiritedness. People have just not been exposed to or worked with women in certain leadership positions. And so you have to show them better than you can tell them that uh, we mm. do not have three yeah. heads or horns, that we you know, walk on two legs and that we desire positive outcomes for the students we serve and the institutions that we lead. And so I think leading with a little bit of grace, allowing people room to be wrong and maybe not have to come groveling to you with an apology, but rather just sort of show up for the next meeting with a different attitude without ever revisiting it. And so I think grace really is sort of a cloak that we have to wear to be successful. And I think third, a really good sense of humor. And the reality is people can be hurtful unintentionally. And so learning when to challenge that and to push back on that and when to sort of chalk that up and chuckle and keep moving are really important skill sets to have if you're going to stay in this work for a long period of time. It sounds like you figured that part out. Like every, Hopefully. I think so, but I don't really know enough, but I think so. You've done a lot at Benedict, but two things that I, I was reading about stood out, the College Women's Business Center. And then kind of adjustment of the degrees that were being offered, uh, which is not a Benedict specific thing. You're seeing that at all sorts of institutions where they're taking a hard look at the curriculum or the degree offerings and the conferral data, speaking of data, and they're making hard decisions. What's that been like in the last three years, right? You came in as the first woman president, you made some big changes, you added some new initiatives that might be popular, might not be popular, specifically on those two, because I think those stand out. Can you Speak sure. a little bit about the decision to do that. And then also, how are they going? What, um, what's that looking like today? Sure. So the we did a comprehensive audit of all of our academic programs. And while many people would suggest many people would suggest that was purely a financial audit, right? Are those programs contributing to the bottom line of the institution? For us, yes, that was a factor, but it was not the only factor. The other is program productivity. How many students are choosing the major and how many people are actually completing the major and mm. then what are the gainful employment opportunities for students post the major? So we actually accumulated data over a decade period of time and learned that a couple of our majors were really grossly underperforming. And hearken back to the comments I made earlier, these institutions were founded as normal schools, largely church affiliated, producing teachers and preachers. That's really mm -hmm. what we started as. So for us, one of the least productive majors on our campus happened to be religion and philosophy. We're a Baptist institution, and yet we had only produced three graduates in 10 years in religion and philosophy, and yet had three full-time faculty in the department and a whole host of adjuncts and a significant cost structure associated with the program that was only producing you know, a person every three or four years. And that didn't make a lot of financial sense for us. We looked at sociology, for example, same experience. Where does a student go from there? We appreciate the liberal arts. We understand that the ability to think critically and to view complex problems and, and to think about solutions to those problems are important skill sets. But where do you go with your four-year degree in sociology? You, by definition, have to earn a master's degree or a PhD to really right. be marketable in that space. Recognizing that, as I said earlier, our kids are low-wealth, first-gen kids of color. They have to go to work out of necessity. Education is not just 
an interesting experience. Right. It is designed to get a job to help move their communities and families out of poverty. And so we really wanted to double down and focus on high demand jobs that would position our students well for either graduate or professional study immediately upon completion and or the world of work that would place them at a relatively high level. So as, a as opposed to criminal justice, we focused on cybersecurity. We de-emphasize religion and philosophy, sociology, some of the soft side social sciences, and really emphasize computer science, cybersecurity, and a whole host of other engineering, um, and a host of other disciplines that we thought really brought tremendous value. We're now in the third year of that, so we haven't seen a full four-year cycle. But what we have seen as a tangible outcome is that while there may have been people within the community, i.e. people who majored in religion or philosophy or sociology, who did not particularly, or faculty in those departments, who did not particularly appreciate the decision, employers have been receptive. Employers who had not considered Benedict as a fertile recruitment opportunity now see Benedict as a tremendous opportunity for recruiting highly skilled students who are work ready upon and that was our goal, to ensure that these kids had a fighting chance and a good job immediately upon completion. So we're excited with the early returns. Next good. year, we'll see our first full graduating class after the reduced majors and the, again, de-emphasizing of some and re-emphasizing of other more high demand. And the Women's the Business case. Center, yeah, yeah, Women's Business Center. Obviously, that one's a little bit personal to me, but it was really one of the one of the things we did when we looked at our program structure is change our school of business. It was the School of Business and uh, excuse me, School of Business and Economics. We changed it to School of Business and Entrepreneurship because one of the things we noted very early on is that our students needed not only the ability to just to get a job, but to create jobs. We are in a community, a low wealth community, largely underrepresented minorities for whom the economic development opportunities are limited, right? We know that small business really builds an economy, builds a community. How long do dollars circulate in a community? All of those things became important to us as we looked at the community in and around Benedict College. And so we also knew that women-owned businesses tend to circulate their dollars seven times longer than businesses started by males and or by majority individuals. And so if we want to build the community, if we wanted to improve the economic outcomes of the entire community, doubling down on women business owners was a really sure way to do that. COVID-19 showed up and tried to derail us, but we decided to go forward anyway. So we actually cut the ribbon on the Women's Business Center in the middle of COVID-19, because by that point, it was clear that 41% of small businesses were hemorrhaging and the vast majority of them were owned by women and minorities. And so we thought they need us now more than ever. We provide a whole host of technical support options. Um, we look at capital acquisition, market plan development, strategic growth of your businesses. We work with the SBA and it's a statewide. Uh, center. So it really helps us to go into the outlying areas. We're located in the capital city, but we have a lot of outlying more rural areas who desperately needed that support to help build the economic engines in their communities. So we're proud of that. Yeah, I would be. That's pretty impressive. And you're on the way. If I, help me understand that stat. I've heard it and I'm not, I couldn't explain it to a five-year-old, which means I really don't get it. It's really- a dollar coming. Yeah. The longer dollars circulate in the community, the stronger the economic base of the community. So we often hear that a dollar doesn't circulate a day in the Black community. So we get paid, we spend our money across town at grocery stores, at beauty salons, at 
gas stations that are not in our community. So those dollars immediately leave. We earn them and they send them out. Dollars that are generated by women and minority-owned businesses in those communities. So if there is a grocery store in this community, that dollar stays in this community. That grocery store owner likely buys their gas in that community. They buy their produce from that community. They hire within that community. Mm. So you want to see that dollar circulate as long as possible within the geographic radius in which it's generated. Unless it's going to a bank somewhere offshore, Mm. you want it to stay in that community as long as possible because the more, uh, the longer it stays in it, the more hands touch it and the more um, economic power it generates. Thank you. Now I get it. Now I can explain it to somebody. I, I, I want like, I don't know, a few months ago, I, in one day, somebody called me from my, speaking of banks, and they, they were talking about ways to cover all of my ATM fees and all of this. And like, as a benefit of, of having, having a certain account. And then I saw an article that said 10% of all SCS, certain socioeconomic status mm-hmm. dollars go to ATM fees. And it hit me. I was like, well, that's messed up. In the same very day, somebody called me to give me free banking in a new way with probably some sort of exchange. I'm reading about other people who can't even access their own money without paying 10% of their money. Truth is poor people pay more for everything. So one of the things that we've done at Benedict of late is really helped our students think through banking. I mean, we had parents come Mm. here to pay in cash. They didn't have checking accounts because there's a mistrust, particularly now that we're doing everything virtually. One of my colleagues is researching a phenomenon known as digital distrust. I don't know where my money's moving out there in the atmosphere. I just want to hang on to cash. But your money's not earning any money if you're dealing solely in cash. Our students are taking their refund checks or their work-study checks to a check cashing service that's charging them upwards of 20% on their money. So poor people keep paying more for everything. Part of it is lack of knowledge. Some of it is lack of access. And so those are some of the things we do here really think Mm. through with students how to bank effectively, how to avoid fees. Many people are unfortunately paycheck to paycheck, right? It's it's pretty easy to slide a little bit and have fees attached because you miscalculated just a little bit. So we really try to work with our students to help them develop good financial management strategies as well. And speaking of saving money, you during all of this, you've also reduced tuition by 26%, like a quarter. Uh, that's kind of big. That's what everybody's trying to do, but you did it. Can you, can you yeah. share how? <laughs> well, again, uh, focus on data. So one of the things that we discovered, what I discovered when I arrived is our collection rate at Benedict was not strong. We were collecting about 41 cents on the dollar. So we're billing it, mm. we're budgeting it, we weren't collecting it. Well, gee, why aren't we collecting it? I don't know, maybe because a Pell-dependent kid can't pay $28,000 a year for tuition if the Pell Grant only covers about six of that, right? Where's the rest of it come from? Loans, these kids are debt-to-income ratio upside down the moment they graduate. We always say Black kids start out red, white kids start out green. We can't be a part of that problem at an HBCU. We really looked at the sources of funding. We have a generous state tuition grant program. We have the Pell Grants. Certainly there are some subsidized loans. We added up all the potential sources for a student and said, look, we're not going to charge more than that because where else would they get it? If you have a zero EFC, if your parents do not have the ability to contribute at all to your education. What's an an EFC? Your estimated family contribution. So when you. you, when you complete the FAFSA, the financial aid form, it kicks out a number that's your EFC. 
84% of my kids are zero. Their parents can't afford to contribute anything to their education. So if their Pell and loans equate to about ten dollars to $12,000 a year, where's the other fourteen dollars to sixteen dollars come from? Private loans, which we know are really hurting poor kids. They're coming out of college debt laden. And so we said, we're not going to do it. We really need to look at what our kids can afford to pay. And there was an in- another interesting nuance. When we look at cost of attendance, that is tuition, fees, room, board, and then books and miscellaneous. We were allowing our students to borrow four to $5,000 in books and miscellaneous because we understood they were poor. Where do they get their aspirin? Where do they get their shampoo? Mm-hmm. Where I mean, that's the money they kind of live on. We reduce that number a little bit because what happens often with low wealth kids, if you say you can borrow up to five, they borrow five, right? They don't borrow one, they don't borrow two, they don't borrow three, they borrow five. And so we had to begin to guide behavior by decreasing those ceilings, not allowing our kids to get in as much debt. So again, it's that loving correction. Um, Mm -hmm. We want you to have what you need, but are not going to allow you to Mm -hmm. access more than you need because this is a loan. It has to be paid back. We also um, hired, we created a scholarship office to help our students really seek out and apply for external scholarship dollars to help make that up and decrease that debt load. So we have seen really good results. Uh, We are not carrying a large uh, accounts receivable balance anymore on the institution's financials. Our students' bills are current. Our students have a lot less stress with balance hanging over their heads. And we're going to carefully watch, we'll hit that four-year mark this year, what that debt load is for students who graduate. We'll have been three full years this year, one more year to see a full four-year cycle. And I'm confident you'll see a significant decrease in the amount of debt that students leave Benedict College with. Uh, much more in line with their potential earnings rather than saddling them with unnecessary debt. That's great. We're going to have to do, we kind of talked about this earlier. We're going to have to do a follow-on episode, right? Like I, (laughs) like the the amount of progress that you've already created and where you're at in three more years is going to be pretty awesome. So I just, let's just earmark that for a second. I I have to have you back. I want want to hear more. Self-described as informed and decisive. I believe that's, Mm -hmm. that's your leadership style. You know, I to take a tangent for a second. I watched your uh, your interview with Charlemagne the God and the Breakfast Club, and like for, and for a second, that was like so cool to get to watch you talking on there and being like, "Oh, I'm going to get to speak to her next. This is amazing." And then I, I saw I saw the date on it. It was mid March of last year, at least when they put it up. Just and you, there write was COVID. Write some talk COVID. about COVID coming out in that conversation. And I was like, this is interesting. There were no masks on. There was like little blips in the conversation around this COVID thing. Yeah. And this is the first interview I've done since the pandemic began and COVID really became a very big thing that I feel comfortable asking, you know, about the last 18 months, really 16 months um, and how that was. And I, so thinking of the context of your leadership styles informed and decisive, I can't think of a better leadership style <laughs> to have for the last 16 months, but I also know that your leadership style permeates throughout your family at Benedict. And so I know you're not going to say how you did a good job, but I would love to hear how Benedict did a good job during that time. Cause I, I would imagine that was tough. Unbelievably difficult, but I'm pleased to say that we're coming out the other end of it. Sort of the descriptors informed and decisive really are, again, institutional characteristics. I, I claim them, but they're institutional characteristics. The informed mm. piece is the data. As I've said many times during this conversation, our kids are low wealth kids of color. So when we evacuated the campus, it, intuitively, 
our kids don't have parents that can charge a plane ticket on 24 hours notice. Our kids don't have parents that can leave their low wage hourly jobs in the middle of the week to come pick them up. So decisive, we're going to subsidize the travel for our kids. Um, we put out a bat signal. We raised about $50,000 in 36 hours, largely from board of trustees members. And we transformed my conference room into a travel <laughs> agency. We purchased 122 plane tickets, bus tickets, train tickets. We ran 24-hour shuttle service to three states to get those kids home safely, uh, recognizing that they simply did not have the wherewithal or the means to do it. We were pretty proud of ourselves. It took us about 36 hours to clear the campus under those circumstances. And then we sat back and relaxed for about five Five seconds long enough to check social media. So there's the informed piece again, right? Yep. The data tells us something, but the chatter tells us something else. So our students posted things like, I was forced on a plane and nobody asked me uh, what kind of home I was going back to. Wow. Okay. <laughs> My initial reaction is, wow, that was pretty ungrateful. And then we recalibrate quickly oh. and we realized we didn't ask. We bought plane tickets and we shuttle kids to airport and we book their luggage for them. We didn't ask, have you ever flown? Are you afraid? Do you know how to get through TSA? Do you know how to check luggage? We didn't ask. Wow. We didn't think we, I mean, in our grown up minds, we forgot what it feels like to be a poor kid who's never flown on a plane before. And so, and no, did we ask what kind of home they came back to? No, because intuitively we were thinking wherever you were before you came here. Right. Well, but we have to ask those questions now. What we learned during the pandemic is that 31% of my students have some form of housing insecurity. That means they may not be homeless in a car, but they don't have a secure, permanent home, meaning they're on a couch, they're on a floor, they're crashing with a friend, a family member. They were insecure in the truest sense of the word. We understood that students felt tremendous guilt because they're suddenly home and their family hadn't counted on another mouth to feed in the middle of a pandemic. You know, 18-year-old boys eat a lot. Right. And so they were reaching out to us, asking for food subsidies. They were looking for housing assistance. When we started thinking about digital connectivity, 12% of my students live in areas of South Carolina where there's no access to broadband. So we could send a computer, we could send a mm. hotspot, but there's nothing for the hotspot to connect to if there's no broadband right. infrastructure. And that's a real problem in South Carolina. So we started figuring out how we handle correspondence. How do we send assignments back and forth to students? How do we navigate this technology divide? About 30% of our kids own their own computer. That meant about 70 did not. So we started mailing out laptops to students to help them stay connected during the summer. So we're addressing food insecurity, housing insecurity, technology insufficiency. And then we started tracking COVID cases. Within the first couple of weeks, we had 13 reported cases of COVID-19 from students living at home. So you're in overpopulated houses where family members probably work in low-wage frontline jobs, grocery stores, restaurants, you name it. They're infecting the family members who are all in close quarters. And so we started dealing with that challenge, trying to figure out how we get the campus open again, because quite frankly, we thought they would be safer at the campus. And then it sort of gotten proof. It, it, we got proof of that. So in late July, one of my students was killed by gun violence. And so that was it for me, crystallized. So we have all these data points. Our kids are getting COVID. Our kids are food insecure. Our kids don't have housing. Our kids aren't connected. Our kids aren't safe we need to bring them home. And mm. so we came up with a plan. My chief of staff 
phenomenal yeah. crisis management leader who had worked in post Katrina. She worked post BP oil spill. So God is God. And he made sure I had somebody on the team who really understood crisis management. Uh, we did the reopening Tiger Nation plan, which is now on the CDC website as a case study for how to do this and got this campus opened up and got these kids back home where they could be safe and fed and secure. And of course, we did a lot of testing. We did universal testing before universal testing was cool. Every single student, staff, and faculty member had to be tested over and over and over. A most unpleasant exercise, but we kept the infection rate to an absolute minimum, 17 total cases in a, in a four-month period. So we were pretty excited about that. And for kicks and giggles, because, you know, what good is a mountain if it's not high enough? Uh, we had come in. We decided to go ahead with commencement, a, a physical commencement for our students, because the whole higher ed world was trying to figure out how to do football, but we canceled commencement. That sort of seemed weird to us, yeah, counterintuitive. Um, and so when everybody time. else was trying to figure out how to host a football game, Benedict was trying to figure out how to do commencement. And so we did an outdoor student-only, graduate-only commencement. So I was there, the speaker, a trustee, and the provost, and all of our graduates spaced out on the football field, and we did a live stream for families. They didn't love it originally, but we sort of said, listen, it's like the Super Bowl. We're going to zoom there in you on your graduate. Yeah. We have all these photos. If you had been in my football stadium, it was 95 degrees. You would have been 200 yards away with your camera phone. You got up close. That's right. High res images of your kid. And it's and it's recorded. So uh, we had a commencement in the middle of COVID-19. And of course, this year we had another one. We let two guests come this time. So we're gradually opening back up. But it was a team effort. The Benedict, as I said at the outset, the resilience on the part of this Benedict family was absolutely amazing and far more than I could have expected or anticipated. And I'm, I'm grateful. We are open for business and we took care of our babies. We did what families do. To say I have goosebumps be an understatement. You 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 called the you called the school a cornerstone. It's it's really more like the entire infrastructure, right? It's like the I don't know, like a central nervous system. Like that's you did all of that while everybody else was just looking around trying to have football games and students were suing their school for tuition hikes and things like that. And you you brought everybody back to keep them safe. Yeah. Like that's how do we how do we find that case study? You said it was on the CDC's website. CDC on the Center for Disease Control. They have it on their website under their COVID resources. The the reopening Tiger Nation plan is on right. there. As we're gonna we're gonna link to that in the uh, in the show notes. Thank you. I appreciate that. I don't know if uh, the, the question I always ask at the end of these is uh, is the same, and it, the intent of this show is to understand the people and the leaders themselves. And I, it's, it's impossible, as I've said multiple times, to, to separate that from an institution because you all are so ingrained and, and just personally involved. But for a second, as we, as we wrap up, like what, what do you want everyone to know about you coming out of this? Like what's, the, what's the one thing people might not know about you? So I, I think the easy, most obvious answer to that really is I am them, uh, grammatically incorrect and all. I am a Benedict student. I was a first-generation college kid without a lot of support, not because my family didn't want to give it to me, but because they simply didn't have it. I would have been the kid who'd never been on an airplane. I, my first airplane trip was at 25 years old as a practicing attorney. I had no idea how to navigate an airport. So had I been a student on Benedict's campus, that would have been me. And so as we think about the polar star being our own children, deep down, it's really that it's us. We are these scared kids who are trying to make life better. 
through education for ourselves, for our families, and for our communities. And I think if we can always remember that, I am serving myself when I serve the students on the campus of Benedict College, and there just isn't anything greater. I would do it for free. Don't tell people that. <laughs> I would absolutely, I would do this job for free. I am living out my dream, and I would do it for free. Amazing. Well, thank you, Dr. Rosen Artis president of Benedict College. Um, this has been fantastic. Uh, we, we keep raising the bar with great people on here. So thank you for your time and I'm glad we could have you. Entirely my pleasure. Thank you. I appreciate right. your giving voice to Benedict. Thank you very much. And that's our show. Thank you for listening to the most interesting people in higher education. This listening experience is brought to you by Noodle, the network of online higher education programs. Our mission is to lower the cost of higher ed through a pursuit of excellence in online learning. And make sure to subscribe on whatever podcast platform you use. See you next time.